once we really know that a person is going to accept us as we are flaws and all then we start to feel safe enough in the relationship that we want to commit to it continue it and so to say attach to it now when we think about attachment you could summarize it all up in this one question will you be there for me when i need you welcome to married 2.0 i'm your host amy sanders i'm a fitness and wellness pro mom, stepmom, second wife, and master certified life coach. I'm here to help you manage your emotions, your relationships, and life so you can live a healthier, happier life. Welcome back, everyone, to the Married 2.0 podcast. I'm your host, Amy Sanders, and today we are talking about the four steps to falling in love, but guess what? It can also be the four steps to staying in love. or adding more of that into your life that maybe you have stopped doing all those little things. And I have the most amazing woman here. I feel so honored to have her with us on the podcast today. Her name is Kimberly Holmes, and I am going to literally read you her bio, which you guys know I do not do because she's just amazing. And so you have to hear how amazing. So anyway, she's created this, she calls it the love path, and she's been teaching people this process of how to use these four steps to fall in love and how they can use this process to better relationships in their lives, including their marriage. Uh, She also believes that healthy societies come from healthy marriages, which are created by healthy families, raising healthy children, and she's passionate about marriage. And so I think she is absolutely perfect for our podcast. She also has a master's degree in psychology and She's been using all these different things she's learned from that master's degree for over 10 years. And she's also a CEO of Marriage Helper and CEO of her own podcast. So guess what? It's called, It Starts With Attraction. You guys should probably head over there and listen to it as well. She's a wife, she's a mother, and she's huge in having people like attract people into their life. She helps research the ways that attract and affect people personally and the relationships that they hold dear. So she has videos, she has a podcast and all of the things that she does reaches over 200,000 people a month who are making changes, who are now making a difference in their lives, which is then trickling to everyone else. So guess she's also a mother from children. She has two children from India and she's a wife. So she's kind of like a really big deal. So I want to give you a warm welcome, Kimberly. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. And I'm just happy to have you here. I am thrilled to be here, Amy. I can already tell that we are going to be kindred spirits and definitely an honor to finally get to talk with you. It's been months. We've been trying to make this podcast go for months. And so I'm like, today's the day we actually get to like hang out. So anyway, welcome. (laughs) Finally. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled. So let's dive into just how you got to where you are now. So what took you down this path to now help people within their relationships? Yeah. Great question. So to answer this question, I'm going to need to go way back to even before I was born. Let's do it. (laughs) Let's do it. I promise it'll all tie in. So my parents have actually been married twice. And you see what happened was in my parents' first marriage, my dad, they'd been married about 15 years and my dad had an affair and he left my mom and my two older sisters divorced her left. And for three years, 
went from, went basically became someone he didn't even know anymore. In the 15 years in their first marriage that they were married, he was a very successful speaker. He had a speaking schedule that was booked six years out. That's how successful he was. Wow. And he went from that to being bankrupt, homeless, a drug addict, he would steal people's prescription pain meds and alcoholic, which ended him up in the hospital with blood alcohol poisoning and more than a 50% chance of dying that night and losing all of his family, all of his friendships, everything that he had during those three years. And he realized, as I said earlier, he realized he didn't like the person he had become. He had literally lost everything. The grass that he wow. thought was going to be so much greener on the other side was absolutely not. And so he did what most people thought was the craziest thing in the world. He called back my mom and asked her to take him back. At this point, they had only seen each other every other weekend, because even though he was going through all that, he still never missed having my, my two older sisters for his time every other weekend, but they had no real relationship other than that. Yeah. And so my mom asked him at that time, do you love me again? And he said, I love you as the mother of our children, but I'm willing to figure out how to fall in love with you again, because I want to make this work. So she said, give me two weeks to think about it. During those two weeks, she called everyone she knew, her family, her friends asking, what should I do? And every person said, absolutely not. Do not take him back. That is the worst decision you could ever make. But she said, in my heart, I knew that he was a good man who had done a lot of bad things but that he deserved to be given a second chance, especially for our children. And wow. so they remarried and they figured out how to fall in love with each other again. And so as a celebration of their second marriage, they had their third daughter, who is me. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then from there, several years later, my parents said, you know, how can we use what we've been through to help other couples not have to experience the pain of divorce that, that we experienced and that my two older sisters experienced. And so in 1999, my parents, specifically my dad founded this organization called marriage helper. And I was never involved with it until I started getting my master's in marriage and family therapy, which again, some people hear that and they think, Oh, like you wanted to follow in your dad's footsteps. I really didn't. I don't know why I started my master's in marriage and family therapy. I, I think I just gotten a bachelor's in psychology, which you can do nothing with. Like you have to get a master's if you study psychology. What am I going to do next? I have to do right. something. What am I going to do next? And, and I, I knew I wanted to help people, but I, I kind of knew what my dad did, but I didn't really understand marriage until I was married. And so I got married a couple of years after that, started my master's in MFT, and I started working part-time at that time for marriage helper just to kind of earn some extra money as I was getting my master's degree. And that's when it all clicked because when I was in my practicums with couples, I would see how slow the progress would be, how frustrating yeah. it could be, how just all of the things that kind of came with that. But then on the weekends, when I would go to these workshops that marriage helper did these three-day workshops that have over a 70% success rate, I would see this amazing transformation happen in these couples in three days. And I was spending all my time, like literally some days banging my head against a wall thinking, how do they not get it? How do they not see what they're doing? That's hurting each other so much. And then see how powerful these workshops were. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to help grow that because I see the vision 
of what this could do and how this could transform marriages. And so I've been with Marriage Helper now for 10 years. I got my master's in psych, now getting my PhD in psych, doing lots of research, continuing the research on how to help couples save, strengthen, and support their marriages to last a lifetime. That was an amazing story. <laughs> that is it's an amazing crazy, story. I love your story. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Marriage Helper started with your parents. Yes. And then now you're the CEO of Marriage Helper. That's right? it. That's how it happened. Wow. Wow. And on top of it, you're like, and let's also just go back to school and get a PhD because why not? And I'm a mom and I have kids. Yeah. I'm not saying it was the wisest decision. I'm simply <laughs> saying it's the one I made. So right. here we are. And I, I'm, I, at this point in December of 2023 is when I should, should grad be done with my dissertation and defend it and graduate. So and be done. Well, congratulations. That's a lot of things. Can I ask about your beautiful children from India? Of course. What do you want to know about them? Where should I start? (laughs) How it came to be that you're like, here, I'm going to get kids from India. Let's start Uh there. And then also like their ages and. Okay. Well, so here's your, here's another story for you. So when I was six years old, my parents every year would take singles on cruises for them to kind of meet each other and, and, you know fall in love. I don't know, do all those kinds of things. But anyway, so I got to go every year we'd go on a cruise and from when I was like four to nine years old. But when I was six years old, I remember this year specifically, because there was one day where we stopped at the, at a port in Honduras and we spent the day, me and my parents doing a river cruise, walking along the beach, picking up seashells. And at the end of the day, we were all going back to the cruise ship. And, uh, as we were walking there, there were three kids that were all around my age. One was younger. One was older. One was about my age and they were selling seashells. And I thought to myself, huh, that's so strange. Like, why are they selling seashells? And also where are their shoes and why do they look so dirty and why are their clothes torn? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't comprehend this. And so my mom looked at these kids and she's like, absolutely. I'll buy some of your seashells. And so she bought three or four seashells. They were a dollar each paid these kids the money. And I looked at my mom and I said, mom, we just spent all day picking up seashells. Why did you just buy some? And the background of this is my mom and I are both very thrifty people to this day. We still go to yard sales every single Saturday. We love saving (laughs) above. That is just how we're wired. So I could not comprehend. And we were even doing this when I was six years old. So I could not comprehend why she would just pay money for what we just did. And my parents both looked at me and they said, Kimberly, these kids don't have a life like you do. They don't have a house like we do. They don't have all of the toy full, the closet full of toys like you do. This might be the only way they are able to get food to feed themselves or their family at the end of today. And that wrecked me. I remember walking up the, the thing to get back on the ship, bawling, just bawling, thinking how, like, why, why is that like that for them? And that changed the rest of my future. I had a compassion for children. And as I grew older, I started to have a compassion and a drive for orphans specifically. And so I did several trips when I was in high school and in college, went to India, spent time at an orphanage and just, that was it. I I knew from the time I was 12 years old, one day I'm adopting 
one day I'm adopting from India. And so on my husband, mine and my husband's very first date, I had just gotten back from one of my mission trips from India, like a week or two before. And we were at the cheesecake factory and we were just talking. And I said, Hey, just so you know, one day I'm adopting from India. So if you're not cool with that, there's no reason to even like do a second date. This is definitely what you should not do in your first date. I'm sure it's exactly what I did. And he said, great, cool. Like love it totally for it. And that was it. So we always knew we were going to adopt and he was in the military after we got married. And so after he finally got done with the military, we started the process and the lot of stuff that I could go into there, but about just how all of that happened, which was amazing. Uh, but three years ago, we landed in India, never having met our children before. Mm -hmm. And we showed up at an orphanage on February 6th and they walked into the room. We saw them for the first time. And 10 minutes later, we were getting in a taxi, going back to our hotel room with our children. And they wow. are the biggest sources of joy. It has been an amazing experience for us. It's been an amazing experience for me as a mom to learn how to gain their trust and build attachment, which we definitely had to do with them but they have the bottom line of it is it's amazing what love does. They were both, they were both delayed. They, my son couldn't even walk. He was two years old. Our daughter, they said that she couldn't talk and they are both completely on level with their peers. Now our son is the happiest man in the world. Our daughter speaks complete fluently. I mean, all the things like because of love, they have thrived. How amazing. I, knew I wanted to know that story. I was like, she's got an amazing story here. We need to hear it. Okay. Which I think falls right into what we're going to talk about today, which is the four steps yeah. of falling in love. Cause you also had to do that with these children and teach them that this is a safe place. Right. So oh, yeah. let's get into it. Can you share with us these amazing yeah. steps that can help change everyone's I life? Yes, I absolutely will. So the great news is there is a process to falling in love. And most people don't know that they think that it's just either the sparks are there or they aren't, but really it's an intentional process that we may not be conscious of, but it's still something that happens intentionally. And so I'll talk about it with, with couples with like yeah. a husband and wife or dating Perfect. couples, um, but you can see how it relates to kids and other relationships as well as we go through. So the first step of the, we call it the love path. So the first step of the love path is attraction. Now in this step, it's not just about how people look. I kind of get, whenever I'm speaking, especially in audiences, I kind of see half of the people when I say that do kind of the eye roll, like going back in there, you know, sitting back in their chair, like I get it. I don't want to hear another thing about how I need to lose weight or eat healthy or all those things, right? Because we're bombarded in society that we just aren't good enough. That's not what this is about. Physical attraction is really more about how do I feel about myself? Am I getting enough sleep? Am I, am, am I doing things that are good for my body, but not just because of how I look because of how it makes me feel better. And it gives me more energy and it gives me more confidence. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting when you look at the research of the contingencies of self-worth, there's several different ones, but the, the key I want to, I want to focus on here is bodily appearance is one of the contingencies of self-worth. But what was found was that when a person focused on that, the most they actually ended up decreasing their overall feelings of self-worth. So 
in summary, we could say when we get too caught up on the looks of things, actually, we feel worse about ourselves overall. But when we focus on these things that are more life-giving, like how we feel, are we treating ourselves well, taking care of ourselves? And that is really over time, what makes us more confident about ourselves, but also makes us more physically attractive to other people. So physical attraction is the first part of attraction, but there's four. The second part of attraction is intellectual attraction. And this is all about being able to have common interests, similar backgrounds, similar hobbies, things like that with the person that you're dating, the person that you're married to, because we really, at the end of the day, just want to be with someone that we can come home and want to talk to that we want to hang out with on the weekend, that we have enough in common that we can share similar things in life and not just always talk about the stressful things like the kids or the bills, finances, taxes, things like that, right? That's where intellectual attraction comes in. The third part of attraction is emotional attraction. And when it comes to a long-term relationship, this is the most important part of attraction because it basically is, do I evoke emotions within others that they enjoy feeling? Or if you're thinking about some being attracted to someone else, the question is, are they evoking emotions within me that I enjoy feeling? And when I think back to when me and my husband were dating, his name is Rob. When we were dating, he would open, even on our first date, this is the first thing I noticed about him. He opened every door, every single door for me, my car door, all of those things. And I thought no other man has ever just been this intentional about making me feel like I am important to them. He would send me flowers all of the time. I felt so completely cherished by the things that he did. And those things don't just stop being important when we're dating. They continue to be incredibly important well into our marriage because we always want to be around people who evoke the emotions that we enjoy feeling. And on the contrary, we never, we do not want to be around people at all who make us feel the, the emotions we don't like to feel. I, I always tell the story here of my friend who several years ago was dating this guy and they started dating in the spring, but summer came around and they started going to the pool together. And he started saying things to her, like, you know, you'd look a whole lot better in that swimsuit if you lost about 15 pounds. Aye, aye, aye. And all of a sudden those emotions <laughs> in her that she had enjoyed feeling when she was around her, him turned into, I don't like the way you make me feel like yeah, you're always yeah. pointing out things that are wrong with me or things that need to change. And you know, I tell that story about my friend and, and me, you, all the women I'm sure thinking are like, I'm going to throw an elbow at that guy. How dare he say that to her? But it's also a heart check for me every time I say it, because I'm thinking how many times have I unintentionally done this to my husband where I've just said, you know, if you would just do this different, or if you would just do that different, then I would be happy. And that may not be explicitly how I'm saying it, but that's how he's feeling about how I'm saying it. And I'm not saying there's not time and ways to express your grievances. There are, but there's a completely different way to do it. So emotional attraction is that evoking positive emotions. And then the final one of attraction is spiritual attraction, which is about sharing a similar set of beliefs and values. So we are typically attracted to those people in life that, that have the same passions we do and have a similar way that they look at the world. And the more different you are you know, a super hot topic right now, unfortunately is a lot of political differences, 
Well, it's unlikely now people who are dating are going to be super romantically attractive to someone who shares completely opposite political beliefs than them, because that's a deep part of what, what they're passionate about and who they are, what their beliefs and values are about. And, and so that's what we kind of, we look for. We look for people we perceive to have similar or greater than beliefs and values than we do. And so all of that together, we call it the pies, the pies of attraction, which really gives people a framework of saying, okay, these are the four things that I can work on to become the best me that I can be in any relationship, especially a marriage relationship. And they continue to be important for as long as we live. So that's the first step of the love path. My gosh, that was like the most amazing (laughs) step of information. (laughs) And I love that they were broken up into four. As you were talking, I was like, okay, just checking myself, like with my husband right now. And what am I doing to be better in these different areas? How am I showing up? And also, oh yeah, that is why I was so attracted to him. Like the intellectual hundred percent. I mean, that's where all of it was there, which is why now I'm married to him. Right. But like the intellectual is like, yes. And then how many common interests we have as yeah, it totally makes sense, but I've never heard it just bundled up that way. So thank you so much. Let's, let's keep going. What else you got? Keep going. All right. (laughs) So once we are attracted to someone, then that leads us to want to move closer, which leads us into the second part the second step of the love path, which is called acceptance. Mm -hmm. And in acceptance, this step is all about knowing more about who a person is. So this is more than just the first couple of dates. If we're thinking about it from the dating standpoint, this is where you're really getting to know someone, their quirks, their annoying things they do, their habits, the things they've done in their past, the things that they are nervous to tell you about. And every time we're getting this new set of information about a person, we're kind of asking ourselves, do I accept them for what they've done for who they are as they are? But the key is without trying to change them. And so a key thing here is really being able to understand. um, Let me give you, let me give you an example. So my dad, who I talked about at the beginning of this podcast, he, he in the past has been on one of the local radio stations here where we live in in Nashville. And he kind of takes, uh, it's like a top top pop hits, whatever. It's 107.5 here in Nashville. And he used to go in in the mornings and people would call in and ask relationship questions. And so there was one morning where a guy called in and he said, I need you to help me learn how to get to a second date with a woman. And so my dad said, well, what's happening on the first date? And he said, well, it's on the first date that I tell them that I'm a crossdresser. And he says, okay, so tell us why you're a crossdresser. And the man said, when I was young, when I was a kid, my dad used to beat me so much that I would go to the ER. I would like one time he broke my arm, but he never touched my sister. Mm -hmm. And so when I dress up like a woman, I feel safe. Mm -hmm. Now, when we heard the fact, the first fact that he called in and said, I'm a cross dresser, everyone had an initial reaction, right? Of like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, that's kind of a big piece of information. But what tells us more about him is not the fact of what he did or what he does, but the feeling that goes along with it and behind it. And so these women that he was going on these dates with, all they were hearing was the fact. And that was something they felt like they couldn't accept, right? Like I can't accept this. I don't want to move forward. 
But the advice that my dad had given this man was, here's my advice. First of all, you don't have to tell them this on, on the first date. The guy felt like he had to, because he felt like he wanted them to know he didn't want to hide this. And then it come up later. He said, do a couple of dates, see if you even like this person. And then when you feel like the time is right, don't just tell them that, tell them the story of what happened and then what you're, what's happening now because of it, because that's the key. They need to understand, or we, I mean, all of us have these things, but the key is how I feel about it means more than what's actually happened or is currently happening. But then the other key of it is, will this person accept me for who I am, even when I share the hard things? So that is the second step of the love path. I have a question around the second step. Yeah. So I think this is something that people, when they're already in a marriage can get really tripped up on, right? Because we start Mm -hmm. to want to change them. Mm -hmm. We start to get very verbal about what we like or don't like, Mm -hmm. and that will feel like you're not accepting me anymore. You know, the the first Mm -hmm. step was like, okay, check, check, check. But now, so how do we stay in this place of acceptance and get rid of the judgment that happens uh, when they do something we don't like? So we accepted in the beginning because we had, I call them like those, like, when you're in, in the, you know, infatuation stage and you're just like loving everything about each other, you have like these goggles that are kind of foggy and you just see all the things that you want to see. And then later, and so you've accepted that then, but now things get hard and people start to treat their partners differently. Mm-hmm. So what do you have to say around that with the second step, like staying in this place of acceptance or learning how to go back to the place of acceptance? Yeah. Well, I'll also say here that it, just because you accept someone for who they are, doesn't mean you accept all the things they do. Mm -hmm. So an example that came to mind as you were talking, and I I don't think it's quite what you were alluding to, but having a spouse who becomes an alcoholic, right? This is, you can accept them for who they are, like love them, treat them well, all of those things, but you don't have to accept that they're just going to drink all the time and they may put themselves or your kids or you in danger, but Hey, I have to accept them. So that means I have to go along with it. That's not true. Instead it's, it's how you're. So the example I would give here is if that was my situation where my husband was, was an alcoholic, a way that I would deal with it would be to say, I, I love you. And I, I understand there's pain happening in your life right now. Can we talk about what's going on? Like what is hurting? What is, what's kind of going on that's leading to this. And so you're, you're separating the behavior from the person you have to, sometimes you have to set boundaries around behaviors, right? But that doesn't mean you should punish the person necessarily. And so that's, really an art more than a science. There are definitely principles that you can follow to set boundaries and make sure that you're protecting yourself. You know, you don't, uh, another example I can think of or situation I can think of is being in a, a relationship where there's just a lot of yelling, criticism, belittling, like all of those things that John Gottman talks about being the four horsemen. Again, those are things that you don't have to pay to play. You don't have to participate in that. You don't just have to accept being treated that way. So you set the boundaries and you you disconnect from that, but then you try and deal with the person and you try to approach the person in a way of, Hey, like here, here's how I'm feeling. And here's the positive thing that I need from you. So instead of saying you have, you know, I hate when you talk to me like that, you're such a jerk, which is just going to make it worse saying, 
you know, when, when that's happening, I feel alone. I feel belittled. I feel like I don't matter to you anymore. And what I need is for us to be able to talk about this in a way that, uh, you know, both of us can have a, a normal conversation. I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but you try and approach it from more of that positive what I place and, and not attacking more just like I'm exactly. feeling like this is this your intention which usually mm-hmm. no this is my intention I just see it differently sure so okay yeah I just wanted to hit on that for a second I think it's good it's a perfect question <laughs> okay so number three the third step yes so the third step of the love path is attachment and in this step once we really know that a person is going to accept us as we are flaws and all, then we start to feel safe enough in the relationship that we want to commit to it, continue it. And so to say, attach to it. Mm -hmm. Now, when we think about attachment, the real, I mean, you could summarize it all up in this one question. Will you be there for me when I need you? Mm. That's it. Will you be there for me over your friends? Will you be there for me over your work? Will you be there for me over X, Y, Z when I need you to be? And there's some people out there who, when they hear that, they're like, oh, that's a lot. Like, I don't know that I want to have to be there at every beck and call. They're going to be clingy and needy. But what really happens is once we trust someone's going to be there for us, we actually, in an attachment theory, it's called becoming more secure, but we actually become more interdependent to where we can function just fine without that person, but we choose to want to have them in our life. And that's the healthy place to be. So I'll use the example here of, of my children. So when we brought them home from India, they clearly were not attached to us, right? We were just these two white people who had just taken them from the place. They, the only place they knew was home and Mm -hmm. they were scared. They did not trust us. There was no trust. So my husband and I had to intentionally build trust mm. and it looked different for both of my kids. So our, our daughter was definitely more of um, what they call anxious in the attachment. So she was the one who was like, just look at me, love me. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Like in the hotel room in India, she was folding clothes and putting them away and looking at us. Like, is this what makes you happy? Like, I'll do whatever makes you happy. I know it's heartbreaking. (laughs) You you don't have to do all of these things in order for us to love you. We love Mm -hmm. you just as you are with my son. He was very avoidant. So he would not make eye contact And if you know anything about how attachment happens in children, it's, that's one of the first things that needs to happen. That's one of the first things that happens with a, well, touch is the first thing that happens with a newborn and the mom. But after that it's eye contact and holding eye contact and then mimicking facial expressions. And so my son wanted none of it. He would have night terrors. He would wake up just screaming bloody murder and I would pick him up to hold him. And he would just literally push me away and cry even harder. And I would just have to keep holding him lovingly, calming him down until he would finally kind of release his little body into my arms and and start to calm down some. The way that I got him to look me in the eyes is, uh, well, it's all of it is by meeting a felt need. But the way that I did it with the eye contact was that's how I would feed him. I would take his food. I would hold it up in front of my eyes until he would just glance at me so that he could see this woman is going to meet my need. Like she's going to give me my food. She's going to feed me. And over time he began to hold eye contact. And then he began to mimic 
facial expressions. And we saw the attachment, the secure attachment, them knowing that we would be there for them no matter what, we would meet the needs they had. We saw that start to develop. Those things don't stop when we when we turn, you know, into adolescents or teenagers, we all have these continued needs that we want to know that the person that we are committing our life with will meet them and help us meet them, that they're going to make the choices that show that they're going to be there for the relationship when it's needed. So that is the third step, which is attachment. And that's another one where a lot of people can get tripped up when they stop, when they stop being there for the partner or at least the partner feels that. I mean, I look at my clients even this week that I had, and I see multiple times where that's why she was like feeling so alone is because he Mm -hmm. wasn't there. She didn't feel like he was there, you know? So, and he sees it from a different perspective, right? It's her perspective. Like, are you there for me? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. But something that we can all, again, check and look into our own life and be like, am I doing this? Right. I feel this way. Absolutely. So then the fourth and final stage of the love path is aspiration. And this is about having shared dreams with your spouse. So when we are dating and trying to figure out who we want to be with, we, we have this inherent shared goal of wanting to get engaged. Once we're engaged, we're working together towards planning a wedding. Once we plan the wedding and get married, we're looking together towards getting the first house and having the two and a half kids and the white picket fence, but kind of after we, we have the kids and and get the job, really, we stop doing things together. We stop having these, these shared goals of things that we can work towards as a couple together. And when there's not something that you have, that's going to pull you together, then life is going to pull you apart. And so from the research, we see that the couples who have shared dreams, things that they're working towards and doing together, or even having shared rituals that keep them coming back together on a consistent basis, like Sunday dinners as a family or going camping every other weekend or a yearly beach trip, or even things that don't cost money, just like playing a board game every Friday night as a family, things like that give us meaning. They give us connection. They give us a a systemized and a, and a time that's just in rhythm to come back together and reconnect to who we are and why we love each other. And so that is what this step is all about creating those rituals, those connections, and those shared dreams of what you want to do together as a couple. So those are the four steps. It's attraction, acceptance, attachment, and aspiration. And you don't just check these off as you go. It's a continual path that you start back over every single day. They're so good though. And they're so simple. Yeah. I've interviewed a lot of people and I, you know, and everyone has amazing things like, Mm -hmm. I think yeah. there's so many amazing coaches and speakers, et cetera, out there. But I'm like, this is just very simple. Like I was literally throughout the entire thing, I was looking at my marriage that didn't work mm-hmm. versus mine now that I felt like it's just been thriving the whole time. Yeah. I'm like, okay, it's because we're checking all those boxes. They haven't mm-hmm. been laid out. Like I didn't know that I was like, okay. Yeah. But yeah, we do all those things. It's just part of our life. Right. And part of it is because we learned both of us came from previous marriages that were not healthy. And we're like, how can we do it different? But I'm all, that is why it's because all those basic like needs of humanity, we are, we are doing that for each other and we're doing it like happy. We want to, 
I want him to be happy. You know, it's very different, but so helpful for so many listeners that are listening right now. Thank you for these amazing (laughs) four steps. So simple. Um, do you, before you go, do you have one last little nugget of wisdom you want to share with the audience? Oh my goodness. Don't worry. You, you just shared like, (laughs) (laughs) and now I'm asking for another one. You know, yes, I do. And someone asked me this question the other day, but they said, can you share something that can get people like instant results? (laughs) I just said, wow, that's a big ask. But I said, you know what here? Yes. And here's what it is. The most important thing that you can do is put down the phone, turn off the TV, look your spouse in the eye and have a conversation every single night and don't touch the phone. Like don't touch the screens. Don't touch the distractions. Just talk to them for 15 minutes a night and be curious about their day. Oh my gosh. So good. So easy and so good. And guess what? 20 years ago, this is what people did, (laughs) right? This was normal back when the divorce rates were lower. Weird. This is so weird. (laughs) Yeah. You also, you also have a free gift, which is the five-step model to satisfying sex ebook, correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay. I'm sharing all of her goods. I know you guys are like, how do I get more of her in your life? So I'm sharing all of her goods, her website, and then also this five-step model in the show notes. So make sure that you guys look at those and you click on those. And thank you again so much for being on the podcast. You have just been full of amazing information. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I've loved speaking with you. And guys, we will be back next week with another episode. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Hey, who is your life coach? If you don't have one, I'd be honored to be your coach. I've created a virtual coaching program called Thrive Club that I'd like to invite you to join. We address challenges, we work on goals, and ultimately we thrive together. There's group coaching, individual coaching, and hundreds of hours of courses and content that I've created just for you. If you're ready to take your life to the next level, then come check out Thrive Club at luckysanders.com forward slash membership.